Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, everyone. I am your host, Sadat bin Abdullah, and I am here today with my co host, Aydin Anwar. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. And we also have a very special guest with us today here on Radio Islam, our colleague, uh, Brother Omer. Assalamu alaikum, how are you? It's Brother Omer. Assalamu alaikum, assalamu wa rahmatullah. So, today we're going to be discussing something very interesting. Um, in light of the recent events in Kashmir, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of hostility, a lot of uh, political tension uh, going on now between India and Kashmir, and potentially even Pakistan, of course. Um, and so today we have Brother Omer here to kind of, you know, uh, help us navigate through all of this and kind of, you know, make sense of, of uh, what this means for the Muslims in India as well. Uh, we know that there's, you know, uh, with the rise of the ultra-nationalist uh, BJP party uh, in India right now uh, that came to power. Um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, harsh ramifications against the Muslim minorities uh, in India. Um, and so, given the hostile uh, attitude towards, projected onto Kashmir, uh, what will this mean for uh, the Muslims inside India as well? So, how are you? And I think you forgot to mention that Brother Omar is also from India. Yes, okay. he is. <laughs> yeah, um, so I was uh, born here, obviously, uh, but my parents are from India originally. Okay. Parents, grandparents. And uh, which part of India exactly? Uh, from the south, so there's a, it's the fourth largest city in India today, it's called Hyderabad. Okay. Um, it's also the city with the largest Muslim minority population of any major city in India. As far as I know. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this name Hyderabad, I always, I always found it to be very fascinating, really interesting. Um, what does that mean? What's the history behind that? Um, there are actually two narratives. Uh, one of them is the more sanitized religious narrative, okay. <laughs> and the other, <laughs> the other is the more maybe historically uh, plausible um, narrative. Um, so pretty much... Uh, you know, to, to give you a, a background on the tensions that are going on right now in India and in South Asia in general, um, religion has played a central part in formulating identity mm -hmm. uh, since 1947. And in fact, before that, during the 1800s, uh, the British had a, had a policy that was essentially a divide and rule policy, divide and conquer. Uh, we are descendants of the British also, so we know what that what that means in other parts of the world as well. Um, but the Hindu-Muslim divide became very prominent in the late 1800s. And since then, uh, there has been a sort of rift between the Hindus and the Muslims of greater India. And when I talk about India, what I'm talking about is the region of India, which we would call South Asia now. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, people get very triggered when you when you call like a Pakistani an Indian Muslim or right. something like that. No, but I'm not referring right. to it in terms of the nation states today. I'm yeah. referring to it in terms of British India, what was all India pre 1947, right? Okay. So that's all. Be that's all to give you a background on. Obviously, Hyderabad is a Muslim uh, sounding name. Yeah. So there is actually a movement within India today because of this identity politics uh, to change some of these names. So um, recently they changed the name of Allahabad, which uh, is the city of Allah. Right. Um, it was called that for historical reasons. Apparently yeah. the Emperor Akbar went there and he thought of God when he saw the Hindu pilgrimage. So wow. he named a Hindu devotional city as Allahabad. The Hindus were not really happy with that. Right. So um, they changed it to, I'm forgetting what they changed it to. I think they changed it to something else. Sure. Um, but so yeah, Hyderabad, um, it was a city that was founded by Muslims, um, as far as I know. Um, Muslim dynasties, Muslim rulers that came. Uh, it was originally a, a Shi'i um, dynasty, the, the Khutub Shahis, okay. um, in the 1500s, I believe. And then later it was, it was conquered by the Mughals, and it became like a Mughal city. So there's a very... Mughal, um, northern Indian Muslim flavor to the city, which is very right. distinct to the rest of South India. Very cool, very interesting. Um, so, you know, I mean, we, we mentioned all of this uh, to say that, you know, um, well, going back to my, my initial point, actually, um, 
you know, j just to, you know, uh, for our viewers, uh, just to briefly go over this. So, you know, I, I mentioned very briefly the uh, potential hostility between, or the, what is now happening is in fact hostility uh, between India and Kashmir. Um, just to briefly go over uh, as to why that is, you know, so during the, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, no, brother. Um, so during the uh, partition of India uh, in 1947, some expected Jammu and Kashmir, uh, both of those territories, like other Muslim-majority regions, to go to Pakistan. Um, however, the ruler of uh, Kashmir at the time, who had initially wanted Jammu and Kashmir to become independent, joined India uh, in return for help against an invasion of tribesmen, uh, or like militiamen from Pakistan. Uh, so, you know, war broke out between India and Pakistan, and Kashmir effectively became partitioned, um, and is now legally part of India, is that correct? Um, so the the historical province of Jammu and Kashmir was um, a princely state. Mm -hmm. um, India at 1947 was a hosh posh of different things. Um, there were regions of India that were ruled directly by the British Raj, so ruled from England. And there were uh, other areas <coughs> that were under semi-autonomous rule from what uh, they used to call them princely states. And so there were over 200 of these. Some of the rulers were Muslim, some of them were Hindu, and they were received patronage under the British Raj. Um, but so they were kind of under the British, but they were able to kind of rule their own territories. Right. Um, so that's kind of where that history of Kashmir comes from. Uh, today, uh, they like to refer to it as Indian administered Kashmir versus Pakistan administered Kashmir because there was a war that was fought. Both sides claim all of it. Yeah. Um, but right now, I think around 40 to 45 percent or something like that is like half of it is ruled by Pakistan another half is ruled by India wow. and actually a small little portion is also uh, claimed by China so interesting mm -hmm. I know I didn't probably have some thoughts about that <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah I mean and I mean that's all you know it's it's uh, it's really tragic but you know the, the region today which remains uh, one of the most militarized zones in the world has been a flashpoint between uh, you know, India and Pakistan for more than six decades. So it's been kind of uh, an ongoing thing. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah. was it two nights ago uh, mm -hmm. is when India chose to uh, 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 disband mm -hmm. uh, Article 370 of the Indian Constitution, mm -hmm. is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. What, what, what exactly is Article 370? Um, so it's actually the most substantial move that the Indian government has done, I think, for decades. It's definitely significant. And the reason is because back in 1947, 1948, so a lot of these things kind of bled into 1948. Um, so I'm not exactly sure like the time frame, but it's within that time frame, 1947, 1948. Um, the, the ruler of Kashmir, who was a Hindu ruler, um, his name was uh, Singh, Hari Singh, Maharaja Hari Singh. Um, and he was in charge of Kashmir. And uh, Basically, he wanted to, you know, remain independent, like you mentioned. Um, but when he saw that the majority Muslim population and also militia coming from, you know, the Pakistani territories uh, wanted to join Pakistan, um, then he kind of panicked. And when he panicked, he asked India for help. Um, and India said that we're not giving you any help until you accede to India. And so, long story short, um, there was an agreement made of semi-autonomous status where okay we're going to secede defense communications finance to india the union of india but we will at least in theory and in name have our own affairs run by a local government that has more power than just a provincial government mm -hmm. um, so that became eventually that article of the constitution so kashmir remained a unique uh, sort of state within india um, so what India has essentially done is they have removed that that special status that was given to Kashmir sure. in 1948 or whatnot, and now they're partitioning the uh, this the state into two states, and they're giving it the status of a union territory, which okay. means it's directly ruled by Delhi and is not no longer has that uh, semi-autonomy. Very interesting. Wow. Um. Thank you for enlightening us. <laughs> Actually, I was unaware. Can you explain like what semi-autonomy would look like mm -hmm. in, in that yeah. state? Because I I only hear about 
like an autonomous region rather yeah. than semi-autonomous. Sure. Um, the reason why it's semi-autonomous is because it's still technically part of, or it would have been part of the Union of India, but they would have had control over like local affairs and local laws um, in a in, to a degree that was not given to the other uh, provincial assemblies and the state assemblies. And so that has not all, if you ask a Kashmiri, because I want to be as impartial as possible and not, you know, give a narrative based on where I'm from, you know, I, I try to be as objective as possible. Um, this was in theory, right, but it was not always, um, it was not always given to the Kashmiri people. There have always been, you know, there's claims of rigged elections, of, of Delhi coming in and kind of propping up you know, puppet governments, and there's there's always been a type of uh, distrust between India and Kashmir uh, to a large extent. So in theory, the constitution gave them the right to govern their own affairs. And one of the biggest things in that uh, article was that non-Kashmiris could not own land in Kashmir. And they couldn't get permanent um, living status within Kashmir. So it was like, it was always kind of assumed that Kashmir had a unique status because of the dispute. You know, that it was technically part claimed by India, but it was able to govern its local affairs more directly than, uh, you know, maybe central rule would, uh, would want or would care to want. So that's why I'm using the term semi-autonomous because in theory it wasn't autonomous because autonomous would, fully autonomous would mean independent. Um, it was never independent, you know, um, except for that brief period in 47, 48. Yeah. Um, but it was always kind of understood that, hey, this is a um, special region, at sure. least in terms of our constitution. So imagine if someone went in to one of the amendments in the constitution and literally got rid of it with yeah. a presidential decree. Huh. You know, there would be outcry, right? right. But uh, in India, um, it's divided along religious lines. So a lot of uh, Indians are in support of this. And actually it's going to be tried in the Supreme Court because okay. the charges have been filed that this is not constitutional. Okay. So well, we'll see what happens with well, that. Um, I remember uh, earlier, I remember actually just speaking about um, some of the religious sectarianism uh, that's going on in India. And you mentioned uh, there was one particular scholar, mm -hmm. who, uh, Muslim scholar, who actually was not for uh, was was very much opposed to you know mm -hmm. um, kind of highlighting different uh, the religious differences within mm -hmm. India sure. and uh, was advocating for uh, mm -hmm. a more uh, unified uh, mm -hmm. nation state. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So um, I think it's important for uh, listeners to understand. And I think a lot of Muslims aren't aware of this that India today has the second largest single Muslim population of any country in the world. So we're not talking about an insignificant amount of people because obviously India is one country, but it's 1.3 billion people. Mm -hmm. And there are 15% of India is Muslim. Anywhere between 13 to 15% of the country is Muslim. Yeah. So you're dealing with a massive population that's second only to the population of Indonesia in terms of size. Say by 2050, the largest single Muslim group will be in India. And there, there will be no country that has a bigger population of Muslims than India. So this is significant. This is not an insignificant number of people. Uh, politically, they have been a little alienated because of the religious kind of tensions and the fact that India was uh, partitioned along religious lines. But population-wise, it's, it's, it's very big. Um, at the time of the partition of India, roughly half of the population of Muslims in India, well, you can maybe say half. Um, you know, these are rough estimates. Maybe you could say 40% of the Muslim population was to remain within the boundaries of India. So when the partition happened on religious lines and the Muslim majority provinces um, seceded from the union, to use American terminology, right? Um, then with the dispute of Kashmir, obviously, which is Muslim majority, yeah. um, all the other Hindu majority provinces went to um, India. But that doesn't mean that there weren't Muslims there. That's what I'm trying to highlight, is that 40% right. of the Muslim population, so this is not 1% or 2%, this is 40% of a population yeah. that's remaining within India. So there were scholars or politicians at the time 
um, that opposed the creation of a homeland for Muslims. In many ways, the Pakistan you know, movement or liberation movement, whatever you want to call it, was a type of religious nationalism, which is only one of two religious nationalisms we've seen in the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, take a lucky guess on what the other one is. Uh, also happens to be a very contentious part of the world. Right. Um, but uh, there were people, long story short, we can go on, um, but there was a, uh, there was a uh, what do you call it, some Muslims that really believed that this was like a utopia, you know, that this is going to be freedom. Sure. Once Muslims have their own representation, we're going to create this amazing society that's going to be run by, you know, Muslims have their own traditions of, uh, how to run society and you know how to live and obviously so they wanted a chance to be able to fulfill that to realize that and so yeah. the you could say the majority of political representation went to the people that eventually created the state of Pakistan mm -hmm. there were some activists and scholars that believed that this would divide the country and once you opened up the can of worms of religious nationalism yeah. it would never come it would never um, cease to exist it would always be a problem um, that would hurt both communities, sure. right? Um, so one of these people was, he was actually half Arab. Okay. His name was uh, Maulana Abu Kalam Azad. Um, Abu Kalam means the father of wisdom, yeah. you know, in Urdu. He was, uh, Gandhi actually referred to him as the, uh, like the Muslim Aristotle. You know, yeah. the likes of Pythagoras, wow. he called him, you know, because, uh, but he was a Muslim religious scholar, yeah. and he has some very um, interesting, uh, you know, speeches that he gives, uh, saying that, you know, we should not divide India, because once we start dividing India, um, Muslims are going to be divided on both sides. So there's 60% of a population on one side, 40% on another side. They're going to be alienated from one another and yeah. the unity of the Muslims will kind of um, cease to exist. So that was his view. I mean, obviously, um, you know, history is history. Um, he did not emerge victorious in that, in that uh, struggle. Yeah. But the point is that when India was created as a state, it was created as a secular state. Okay. So that's, I think, the point that we should get from this. You know, not, not oh, history should have been different. History is what it is, right? Yeah. But the point is that he was an Indian freedom fighter who believed in the unity of the country, despite yeah. different religions. Mm -hmm. And the country that was founded by people know Gandhi, people know, you know, these people, yeah. um, it was founded on a secular, secular basis. That sure. this wouldn't be a Hindu response mm -hmm. to Muslim religious nationalism, Yeah. right? So once the country's divided, then it was, okay, they formed a country based on what they thought was right. Yeah. We're still going to form a secular country where minorities have rights. Yeah. And India actually uh, is one of the only countries in the world where Muslims have up until now maintained a uh, separate civil court. Okay. So they were able to uh, actually, um, not criminal court, not, you know, but civil courts for marriage, divorce, yeah. other things. Right. They had their own courts within India. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that India, you know, did give that limited degree of, you know, religious yeah. autonomy, not political autonomy. Um, but sorry, I'm, I'm going off on a, no, this on is a great. huge <laughs> on a, on oh, this is incredibly but really I have a question. So, um, what do... So I know your 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 parents are from India. Mm -hmm. um, what do you know of like how Muslims in India perceive of this dividing of Muslims between Pakistan and India, or mm -hmm. vice versa? Like, do you know of mm -hmm. the general perception of that Pakistanis feel about the fact that forty percent of mm -hmm. Muslims are now in, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, forty percent of not worldwide Muslims, but right. You get the point. Forty four percent are in India. Right. Well, it's interesting because uh, the forty percent was you know rough estimates. I would say at that time. Now the populations are actually kind of equal. Okay. Um, if you look at the Indian Muslim population, the Pakistani population, um, so I mentioned that it's the second largest single Muslim group in, in the world. Pakistanis would maybe contend that and say Pakistan is a little bit more. Um, God knows best, you know, but they're up there. You know, they're, all, they're both hovering around 200 million. Yeah. Whether you say 190 million in India, 210 million in Pakistan, the point is they're both rising, developing countries, so the population is going up, uh, yeah. you know, just by virtue of kind of being in that developing phase. 
Um, but that's that's a great question. Um, I think Muslims in India feel very, very, very um, alienated from all sides because what basically politics has become this religious religion war. Yeah. And Indian Muslims don't feel that way because on one hand you're dealing with their their home, their homeland, the, the country that they have chosen to be a part of, which is India, and a country that was formed for the autonomy of, of Muslims in India, which is Pakistan, right? So they feel like a tug of war because in India, um, they, they I, I would say because I'm, I'm not you know, actually like politically Indian, right? I was born and raised in America, um, but um, from what I see, they, they do want to be a part of India. You know they're proud of being Indian, but they don't want that that being part of India to necessarily be that you are against neighboring countries. Right. You know what it, I mean? it doesn't have to be like a dichotomy where right. where, where things are you know right. uh, uh, opposed. Right. And so they they definitely do not feel like that was the right decision. Right. In 1947, because again, all Muslim majority provinces. Uh, seceded, right? Sure. And Kashmir now is a disputed territory. So Muslims in minority provinces suddenly don't have any political representation or political support because the, the community is divided in half. So, for example, in my family, uh, my grandparents on both sides have uh, relatives that just packed up and left. Yeah. And they have no idea what happened to them. So, like, my grandmother has first cousins and uncles and aunts that she hasn't seen for 70 years and doesn't know who they are or where, they're, where they ended up going, right? Uh, so, families were split apart. Um, and so, uh, families and communities were split apart. Um, in Hyderabad, there were a lot of people that migrated to, to Pakistan. So, there's definitely a sense of, um, you know, I think there's a grief at it didn't have to be like that because there was a lot of bloodshed that happened during the partition. And I think there's a sense that that could have been avoided because we're living together with Hindus, right? That's what they would yeah, say. Yeah. So if we could do that, the whole country could have done that, you know? Right. But once now, because it's happened, they do feel a loyalty to India, but they don't want that loyalty to come at the, you know, polarization of Pakistan. Right. You know, because obviously Pakistan is Muslim and those people are ethnically the same sure. as Muslims in India, which is yeah. a point that a lot of... I think Pakistanis sometimes don't understand is you have people from Delhi, people from Mumbai, people from other parts of India that are now Pakistani and now they have on their own national identity. Yeah. But it's not an ethnic identity. Right? Yeah. There's no there's no ethnic identity like Pakistani, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so a lot of a lot of uh, Indian Muslims like still feel like you know these are like our people yeah. and whatnot. But they can't say that because it's so polarized now that yeah. they're put in a very problematic situation. And their loyalties would, like, their nationalist like loyalties would be questioned. Right. Absolutely. So, so is that why? So I had like some friends in college where like mm -hmm. some were Indian Muslims and some were Pakistani Muslim, and they would always like crack jokes and but like mm -hmm. get really sometimes they would get really aggressive when they're right. joking around about their nationality or if they're you right. know about about a I feel like a lot of common people just um, play into the culture. There's definitely a culture of polarization between India and Pakistan. But again, that, that polarization, a lot of Indian Muslims don't feel that uh, they have a place in that because it's, cause it, it, it devolves into Hindu-Muslim, you know what I mean? And they're Muslims on this side, you know, not the other side. So they, they appreciate Pakistan because Pakistan is a Muslim country, and then they appreciate India because they're living in India and they're citizens of India, right? right. So they don't really know where to, 
where to place themselves. Now in cricket, you know, cricket is just a harmless, I mean, as long as there are no riots and, right. you know what I mean? It's, it's actually called uh, like, like a type of diplomacy, you know, like a cricket sports diplomacy, right. where it's like if you can kind of release all your nationalist <laughs> type of, you know, energy onto like a game, onto right. athletics, by all means, you know, by all means, right. you know, just don't, just be <laughs> civil about it. Right. And actually, the some of the best examples of harmony have been in cricket. Mm. Because when the other side comes to the other country, the the type of, you know, uh, honoring of the guests that happens yeah. is very profound. And in, in fact, I mean, it's, it's an interesting topic to bring up because the Prime Minister of Pakistan right now yeah. is a famous cricketer. So I don't know if you guys know, but in the, we were probably too young, I, we weren't even born, but in the 80s, he was 70s, 80s, 90s, I'm not entirely sure, he was like the Michael Jordan of the cricket world. <laughs> so imagine Michael Jordan become president of the United States. Wow. That's essentially what happened in Pakistan. Wow. So he had a huge following because he yeah. was a cricketer. He was well known even in India, yeah. you know, he was known as... Uh, you know this uh, this this attractive, handsome guy yeah. that everyone kind of swooned over. You know this this is this is this was his personality, and now he's the political ruler of, right. of Pakistan. So it's kind of profound. So he has, I think, he has that sense that you know yeah. um, he doesn't want tension with India yeah. because he spent his life like you know going back and forth and interacting you know with interacting with them, and you know he knows that this is not going to what do you call it, lead to anything productive if they, in fact, two countries do go to war. So um, I think in cricket, it's very harmless. Um, but Indian Muslims that buy into this dichotomy, I think is very dangerous because they don't know the history. Right. Um, because that, that struggle, which is based in religious tension, should not really apply to Indian Muslims. I, I really do believe that. You know. Would you say would you say that either state, whether it be India, Pakistan, purposely changes up the narratives or hides certain parts of history to mm -hmm. um, that like kind of that ends up favoring yeah. themselves? Oh, 100 um, percent. Happens all the time. Uh, distortion of history happens regularly. You know, because they want their side to look like the right side. You know, in history, right? <laughs> and history is always more complicated than that. You know. People should be able to look objectively at history and say, okay, what did my side do that was right? What did my side do that was wrong? You know, and sometimes Pakistanis um, and Indians don't, on both sides, don't allow that to happen. And the biggest example is in Kashmir. You know, yeah. both sides say we are 100% right in everything that we did, right? But it's more complicated than that. The world is more complicated than that. History is more complicated than that. Um, so I think that. They, they definitely do that on both sides. You know, uh, Pakistanis, I think they definitely do have this, this, this idea of like, we created this homeland, which was a dream. Yeah. You know, we, we achieved the impossible by creating a separate state for Muslims. That was like the, essentially like a promised land type of yeah. mentality, you know. Right. And uh, a lot of times, unfortunately, and now they would say this is my bias being yeah. Indian Muslim, but I'm just, you know, I, I, don't, I hope not. But I feel like they sometimes don't understand or um, affiliate themselves with Indian Muslims as mm. much as maybe they should or could. Sure. You know, that um, in terms okay, of like like reciprocal solidarity. Or, right. I mean, I mean, I think the solidarity is there, but I mean, I think that you know, looking at them as like their own people. I think sure. a lot of, like, once a state is formed, yeah. now you have boundaries for who's considered your nation. Yeah. Right? And then your concern and care is limited to those people within those boundaries, and right. which, is the, which is the danger of politics, right? Because now political goals become your ethical and moral goals. Yeah. You know, the, your ethical and moral goals aren't independent of politics. Sure. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and also, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. But um, I'm assuming also the much of the culture also remains the same, right? Mm -hmm. Other than like the religious aspect mm -hmm. of of the society, mm -hmm. but everything else remains intact. You say that's and yeah. the language. Can you mm -hmm. comment on the right? Language? Yeah, yeah. That's a very, very good point. Um, this is happening all the time on both sides. Um, 
is an effort to become distinct or to show each other as distinct. Again, which puts Indian Muslims in a very um, in a very peculiar situation because a lot of culture that is just Indian Muslim culture pre-1947 became the national and political narrative of Pakistan, mm. right? And so now since they are not in Pakistan, they're in India, India tries to distance themselves from what they see as a rival political narrative, which means distancing themselves from Indian Muslim culture and Indian Muslim history. Yeah. So one side is trying to highlight Indian Muslim, again, I'm using Indian Muslim as pre-1947, whatever common elements of the culture were. One side is using that as a political, uh, as, as the basis of their political narrative, and another side is is the antithesis of that, and using everything which is opposed to that as their political narrative. So Muslims are stuck in the middle saying, this is our culture, but it's, it's, it's part of the other country's narrative. Right, so the, the best example would be Urdu, right, which yeah. is the language that is the official language of Pakistan. Um, Urdu and Hindi are uh, what you would call mutually intelligible at the local level. So the average language that both Indians and Pakistanis speak, which is the official language of both countries, um, is the same language. It's the same language. But there's like a spectrum. So. You could say that what everybody speaks is kind of the middle of the spectrum, and you can keep adding vocabulary to the grammar until it becomes like two separate languages, so right? So, so these are just like like vernacular dialects. Right. So what happens is when you look at the poetry of yeah. both of them, um, it's going to be very different than what the average person is speaking, right? Sure. And so what India tries to do is in India created Hindi, you know, which is uh, borrowing from from Sanskrit and from other vocabulary which sounds distinctively Hindu or Indian yeah. and they want to distance themselves from the patronage of Urdu which became the official language of Pakistan right. but Indian Muslims still speak Urdu does that make sense Interesting. but they are not now they're caught in this dichotomy yeah. and so in the Indian government doesn't patronize Urdu schools yeah. so all Indian Muslims go and they they learn Hindi Okay. Right, because they can't learn Urdu. They can, but it's not as um, facilitated for them because yeah. that's like that's like the Pakistani language, right. you know. But it's the it's same language. They can understand right. each other. Wow. So, you know I mean? so, so you're saying people who speak Hindi and speak mm -hmm. people who speak Urdu can't understand each other. They can. They and, can. Okay. Yeah. They they can at the vernacular level, at the common level, the at the at level. the poetic level, or like you know, a lot of countries. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but I know in the Arab world it's like that. Yeah. You know how in the news everyone starts speaking proper, right. like Fosha, really Arabic, proper right. lang language. Right. I don't. Is Saturday it the same Arabic. with uh, like some like some of the Turkish called the Turkic cultures also? Yeah, I'm sure. Where they, they speak like once the news comes on, it's like, bro, where this language go, man? It's like the poetic. It's like the amazing yeah. like. Yeah. you know standard of the language so when you hear that then you can say oh these are two different languages but it's vocabulary difference it's not really two sure. different languages does yeah. that make sense like it's not like grammatically different or anything like it's that. not it's actually the same language which yeah. originated in the 13th century in northern India wow. but because of religio-political differences now they've become very very different right you know so so so, so like the, the the point is like you can't even say you speak urdu like people say you speak hindi you know because we speak hindi you yeah. know we don't speak urdu right. urdu is the pakistani language yeah yeah right but indian muslims um even look up to the same like historical figures as pakistanis would sure. because it's the same history yeah because the history is is kind of divided along religious lines, mm. but then there are rival political narratives. So, for example, in Hyderabad, uh, there are there's a the Hindu nationalist movement, which is the BJP. Um, the BJP is the political manifestation of right. the of the nationalist kind of sentiment. They want to distance themselves from Muslim culture as much as possible. Right. So the the Muslim heritage of Hyderabad, for example, is completely marginalized because they don't. That's like the Pakistani. Like we don't want to talk about the you know, Muslim history, right? We don't talk about Urdu, we don't want to talk about these things. Um, so it just opens up this whole can of worms, this Hindu versus Muslim dichotomy, right. and Muslims like to emphasize that, you know, they ruled over India, 
and Hindus like to do that in a negative way, you know, right. that they were oppressive. Right. So it just opens up this whole, like, um, unfortunate can of worms where the language issue could have been just like, uh, you know, in Canada, they just have the, the, like, English and French written everywhere. Yeah. That could have been solved, and it almost ha was solved. But then because of the partition, th that divide became very pronounced, and they, uh, you know, it's like the rest is history, sort of, yeah. so... Interesting. Yeah, so I mean, speaking of, you know, religio-political uh, divides, um, you know, look, when looking at the BJP uh, recently and kind of looking at their, like, hostile attitudes towards uh, the Muslims of India, um, how has that kind of uh, affected the Muslims in India, like, like mm -hmm. long term? I mean, yeah. like, how, like, what, what are the, you know, some of the issues that Muslims in India are currently facing right mm -hmm. now? Well, I mean, I think once you say that a country is based on a religion, mm -hmm. anyone that isn't part of that religion is automatically going to feel like a second-class citizen, right. you know. So, like I mentioned before, India was very much created on a secular foundation. And I think minorities, and this is not only Muslims, Muslims happen to be the largest minority in India, mm -hmm. um, but they're also Christians and Zoroastrians that yeah. are very prominent. In fact, the, uh, the uh, founder of Pakistan's daughter married into a Zoroastrian family, and they're a very prominent yeah. Zoroastrian family in Mumbai. They don't like that part of history right. sometimes, because, again, it goes against the narrative. Right? Yeah. But the point, the, just the point of that was that there are, you know, sizable, there's a sizable Zoroastrian minority, there's a sizable Christian minority, there's a sizable Muslim minority. Yeah. Um, and so they feel obviously threatened by that. There's, yeah. there's, there's a shaking of the foundation of the country, which was based on a secular foundation, not a Hindu nationalist sort of vision. So right. the BJP uh, goes against the vision of the secular India that Gandhi saw. Sure. You know? And just, just uh, you know, for, uh, for the viewers who are, yeah. uh, or for the, excuse me, for the listeners mm -hmm. who are unaware, um, who are the BJP exactly? Yeah. I don't. Uh, we've, briefly mentioned yeah. they're the current uh, ruling party in India mm -hmm. yeah um, so they are a um, India is 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 different in the US because there are many parties okay. within India right. the parliamentary democracy system is very complex I don't I don't exactly understand it fully either it's based yeah. on the UK model not right. the American model right but in America you have just two political parties you know in India, you have multiple political parties, yeah. um, but this was one of them. Um, but in 2011, they shook, they changed history by overthrowing, you could say, uh, the ruling uh, party that ruled India since its independence. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about, uh, which was the Indian National Congress. You know, everyone knows them as Congress um, in India. So they were the ruling kind of class, the ruling Indian uh, elite, political elite, the ruling Indian political party for like 60, 70 years. And then come the BJP, which yeah. is the Hindu nationalist sort of movement. So they, they come to power in 2011, um, win by a landslide again after five years. Um, and they've been ruling India ever since. They have a vision where they want India to be a Hindu country. Sure. They say that Pakistan is a Muslim country, and so India should be a Hindu country. So it's essentially just like reactionary. It is very reactionary. And, and when you go into the history of Hindu nationalism, you will see that it is reactionary to Muslim nationalism. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very much a religious nationalism which alienates minorities, you know, um, and that they have this belief that, you know, um, Muslims are really Hindus, that were forcibly converted to Islam, wow. and they need to be converted back. So they have had mass conversions of Christians in the country. Yeah, they have gone and From uh, Christians uh, to Hinduism. To Hinduism, because yeah. they have this, they have this thing where, you know, oh, this was the result of bad politics, and we yeah. need to bring our Hindu brothers back from. Yeah. destruction you know back from the brainwashing that was done by yeah. the elite so I mean so it's just a, it's a very dangerous type of religious nationalism but now they have political power which means that they're going to do things to uh, move India into a direction where India is considered a Hindu country things like you know uh, stopping the Adhan 
the call to prayer in yeah. major cities, which is still very popular in India. You can yeah. see, you can hear the call to prayer five times a day on loudspeaker outside. Yeah. Yeah. So they want to change things like that, you know, um, and they 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 want to, um, you know, obviously people have heard about the the cow. Um, the issues with uh, right. you know the sacredness of the cow in yeah, India. Muslims eating beef. Right. So they you know cow was sacrosanct, and they you know want to make sure that no beef, female cows. To right. clarify, female okay. cows are sacrosanct. Okay. India, ironically, is the largest exporter of beef in the world. Oh well. But it's uh, it's like male cows, I believe. So okay. female cows are sacrosanct. So I mean, so a lot of what you're saying um, about you know the uh, prohibition of the adhan and a lot of this you know uh, uh, ultranationalistic sentiments, right? I mean, it reminds me a lot of the um, of, what of what we're currently witnessing right now in Europe, which is the rise of the far right. Mm -hmm. um, but you say that you know, and, and and what's interesting is that I mean, you went, you also mentioned earlier how the the, the political system in India in place right now uh, is based off of the UK parliamentary system. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, with that, I mean, would you also say that, to some extent, the BJP is also somewhat influenced by the rise of the far right in Europe today? That's a very good question. Um, and I would say absolutely. You know, I would say that the West still has a very strong cultural imperialist control over much of the world. Sure. And whatever happens here tends to happen in other parts of the world. Um, so things like fake news, you know, come up in other parts of the world all of a sudden because Donald Trump is using the fake news. Right. I mean, I think it would be an oversimplification to say that it's there's like a direct one-on-one -on -one correlation, but I think that there is a there is this worldwide sense of like the boogeyman or the other which is personified in the Muslim, you know. So I think the BJP that has had these views for 70 years suddenly has a platform where people are listening to them, where right. people are buying into their rhetoric, where before they may have been dismissed as like, oh, those guys, you know, the far-right guys, just forget about them. Even like in this country, right? Yeah. Things that were fringe suddenly now are becoming mainstream. Yeah. So that's exactly, I think, what's happening in India, where things were, were, were very um, isolated or things were just like, oh, just mad people, you know, just saying yeah. things that are now becoming mainstream. Um, and, 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 and to be fair, um, India is still technically a secular democracy. Sure. You know, uh, but again, now that they're changing the constitution with impunity, where is it going? Yeah. You know, and what are they going to do with the fact that around 20% of their country is minorities? You know, this mm -hmm. is a 1% to 2%. This is a large portion of the population. Yeah. Or you, or you could even talk about, you know, how much of it is a democracy when, you know, they're occupying Kashmir and, mm -hmm. and carrying out what's effectively a genocide. Mm -hmm. you know, I was reading mm -hmm. up on the Kashmir issue earlier today, and it just, I mean, there's one ser section that said they, were, they found um, 6,000 unmarked graves in Kashmir mm -hmm. from mass murder. Right. Um, and how, like, the mental hospitals that used to, there's one mental hospital in, in a valley that used to have, like, with 10,000 patients, but now it's 100,000, mm. right? And and obviously the much more like sexual violence, um, yeah. and and all the other yeah. uh, traumas that come with uh, what's happening in Kashmir right now. So I know we because I keep hearing, I mean, keep seeing on the news whenever India, yeah. whenever the topic is brought about, like what's what claims to be one of the biggest democracies is is actually carrying this. Yeah genocide out. I mean, yeah, like the claim is that India is the world's largest democracy, right? And then yeah. they go do something where they override the constitution overnight with almost unlimited uh, parliament support. I mean, it's something unheard of. I mean, yeah. you're not going to hear something like that happen. Again, imagine if somebody went after the 14th Amendment or something and just yeah. overnight got rid of it and the whole country celebrating right That's, or even like blocking know. the internet and the media <laughs> i mean these are you know i mean it's obviously they're obviously using uh tactics of a police state sure you know yeah. i martial think it's law. i think a martial law yeah. heavily militarized zone the largest militarized zone on the planet yeah. um and you know it's 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 completely antithetical to this idea that we have a democracy, yeah. that we have you know a system in place, we have a, a government in place that respects human rights, 
Um, so India is, I mean, India is going to have to answer to the world. I think people yeah. are watching, and I don't think, and this is this is you know one of the things which I believe that Indian Muslims have a role to play, mm -hmm. because Indian Muslims are not sucked into the blind nationalism on both sides because yeah. they are not polarized like I mentioned as much on both sides. They have loyalties to both sides, you sure. know, in in a sense. Uh, not political loyalty necessarily, but cultural loyalty, religious loyalty, ethnic loyalty, right? On both sides. On one hand, it's their country. On the other hand, it's a country that was made for their people. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So um, they have a role to play in warding off um, tensions and violence. I think, I think if there's one thing that region should learn in 70 years is that violence is not working. Right. Whether it's violence from independent terrorist groups, militias, or it's violence between states, wars, or it's the violence of a police military state yeah. cracking down on a province, right? Which is what you were just talking about, yeah. or cranking down on, on one part of the, of the country yeah. or, or disputed part of the country. There needs to be a solution. Now, now what's, what's interesting is that well, it's not interesting. It's dangerous. Is that they these? We're talking about two nuclear powers. Yeah. So there is nowhere else in the world where two nuclear powers are technically at war. Right. There's there's no place. The largest threat to, was the U.S. USSR, which is obviously yeah. gone. Russia and the U.S. I mean, right. apparently they're getting really cozy. You know, <laughs> as of recently, a little too cozy. Yeah. Maybe you could say right. Um, not to go into that tangent, um, but. Uh, so, so you we're dealing with a very like we're talking about two billion people that are on the right. brink of nuclear war. Yeah. So violence has to be uh, has to be mitigated at all right. costs. Right. That that if they want a solution to the Kashmir problem, they're going to have to bring India, Pakistan, and the Kashmiri people to the table. Mm. You know, any side, you know, using brute force to try to get what they want is first of all very childish yeah. and history's testimony that it doesn't work you can't subdue people you can't subdue a li uh, liberation movement or a secessionist movement through force right. it never works right, right? And it, it, it doesn't work so yeah. so i don't know where india is getting these tactics from i don't know why they are doing the things that they're doing Maybe they think they're unstoppable because the BJP won by a landslide and yeah. they think they can do whatever they want. Um, but the world, they, they're still accountable to the rest of the world, you yeah. know. And um, Pakistan, I mean, is a nuclear power. So yeah. you, you can't write off Pakistan. And, and likewise, Pakistan can't write off India. Yeah. So there has to be a bilateral solution that is based on... on there has to be peace. Right. That that's the first thing that has to be on the table. Is that war is off? See, if you go to both sides, the first thing to talk about is war. Yeah. You know, in India, everybody's ready to stroke the flames of war. Right. You know, let's just go get out. Let's just go get them. Let's just get rid of the problem. You know, yeah. Pakistanis don't want to just march into Kashmir and just get rid of it. Yeah. Doesn't work like that, and it's not going to work. Sure. Um. You know, and. Also, the voice of the actual people has to be heard. You know, you, you have 15 million people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Okay? So you, you, you cannot uh, hang on to historical animosities. I think both India and Pakistan have these historical grievances. Yeah. Right? You have to look at what is happening now. Yeah. What's on the floor now. Both these countries exist. The Kashmiri people exist. The Kashmiris are not happy with India. Yeah. So something has to be done. And, um, you know, history will, will tell, you know, if two billion people, God willing, have the sense right. to get out of these bubbles of nationalistic rhetoric, politically yeah. fiery, charged rhetoric, right. and come to a solution. What that solution is, I don't know, mm -hmm. right? I would be the Messiah if I knew, okay? I don't know. Right. Um, but there has to be a solution that's rooted in peace. Right. And peace on all sides, sure. you know, and within countries, without countries, and uh, that's I think Indian Muslims need to play a part in that because they, I think, out of all people, Indian Muslims, 
uh, non-Kashmiri Indian Muslims yeah. don't want to see war because they don't really have a political aim here. Sure. You know, like, all other sides have clear political agendas, yeah. right? There's no out clear outline objective for... There's no clear political objective for non-Kashmiri Indian Muslims, yeah. right? There's no, like, political demand. Doesn't mean there's anything necessarily wrong with political demands, but they don't have a political demand. Right. And they're, I mean, they so, don't necessarily have the luxury to have those demands anyway. Right. Is that, would you say that's yeah. fair? Yeah. They just want to see, I mean, people get along. both Because the, the Hindu-Muslim problem in India is going to continue until there's an India-Pakistan problem. The minute the India-Pakistan problem, which is rooted in Kashmir, until that's solved, the Hindu-Muslim problem in India won't be solved. And Muslims will continue to be alienated and labeled as Pakistani supporters. Sure. So there is probably no group in the world that wants peace between those two countries as much as Indian Muslims do. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually an interesting um, quote from when Pakistan was founded by Jinnah, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, yeah. who was um, the founder of Pakistan, who in his speech he said, I wish that India and Pakistan would have the relations of the US and Canada. So he mentions that in his speech. Like that was the intent of, of him. Yeah. So that intent needs to be realized. Yeah. And uh, the, the crux of the issue is, is in, in that region. Kashmir is a beautiful place. Yeah. The people are very beautiful people. Mm -hmm. um, it has beautiful architecture. It, was, it used to be called the Firdos of India. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so for non-Muslim uh, listeners, Firdos is the highest level of paradise for Muslims, right? The paradisial garden for Muslims, right? So it's a very beautiful place. And it's very, very heartbreaking to see such a beautiful place that is a Muslim land. Um, be completely decimated with war. Yeah. It's such a painful sight to see. And um, another thing, I know I'm going on and on, but no, um, <laughs> you know, human rights should always be at the forefront independent of political aims and objectives. Absolutely. So what happens is that usually you have an initial human rights cause which then becomes a political cause, and then the political cause takes over and becomes, instead of the means to an end, it becomes the end. Right. Right? So oftentimes people that started off as uh, people that are oppressed then become oppressors because they're trying to achieve this political goal. Sure. So that always has to be highlighted that when we are f looking at what's happening in Kashmir, we are looking at it through the lens of human rights. These are human beings yeah. that are being oppressed, mm -hmm. right? That needs to stop. Yeah. And on all sides, you know, because Hindus have been oppressed in Kashmir by Muslims, you know, the yeah. Hindu pundits is a huge issue. All sides, human beings, yeah. um, need to be looked at as human beings, regardless yeah. of their religion and their, and their race, you know. Of course. And that has to be at the forefront that we don't want lives to be lost. Yeah. We don't want innocent... Uh, people that are, you know, these soldiers too, if you look at their families, they're not some boogeymen, you know, Indian or Pakistani soldiers, they're just trying to do their job. Yeah. And, you know, it's amazing because the people making the decisions never have to go to war. Yeah. They're making millions of dollars chilling. Of course. Right? right. So the people that uh, go to war, the people that actually suffer are the common people themselves. We think we sometimes tend to think of soldiers as like these abstract. Yeah. No, these are human beings too. Right. So we want to avoid that at all costs. You know, I think that that needs to happen. So. Yeah, well, JazakAllah khair, uh, brother Omer. Okay, uh, so um, much. I learned a lot. Yeah, we we learned we learned quite a bit uh, today. Uh, a lot of information that I didn't know prior. Um, but yeah, just like a look at it. Thank you so much yeah, for having me on. Thanks for having me on. Uh, uh, we really appreciate you uh, being here today. Um, thank you. Thank you so much to all of our uh, listeners for tuning in today to another episode of Radio Islam. Uh, we look forward to having you tune in again in the near future. And uh, thank you so much. And assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.